most used text in funerals uh, from the New Testament there are, John 14, let not your heart be troubled. Uh, some of you that watch Fox News sometimes you'll hear uh, Sean Hannity say that all the time and I always think to myself when I hear him say it, Do you, have you ever read the rest of that passage? Uh, there's a reason for not having a troubled heart and Jesus lays those out. But kind of give some of the context. Um, the disciples, if you think about it up until this point, they have already um, been clued into the fact that Jesus would be departing. Um, in fact, he says, where I go, you cannot go. And as I told the religious leaders, I tell you now, I'm about to leave uh, and you're not going to be able to follow. And so they already have the information that they're going to be uh, deprived, as it were, of Jesus' presence. Uh, not only that, but in the whole discourse, uh, they learned that there's a betrayer in their midst. And so Judas is identified at least to John and uh, Peter. Uh, it's not real clear to me if, <clears throat> if all the other disciples knew it at that moment, but they did. But uh, they had discovered a betrayer among them, uh, their response to that. And then finally, in the last part of this, Peter himself, after making such a bold statement in regards to his devotion to Christ, his willingness to follow Christ, uh, gets rebuked in some sense. The Lord telling him that uh, before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. So there's a lot of reason here that their hearts had been troubled. And so Jesus, knowing that, speaks directly to that issue. And that's where we pick up. I'll read through <clears throat> verse 15, but we'll probably just keep our focus on verses 1 through 6 for tonight. It begins here, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father. Just show us the father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So there's a lot in verses 7 through 15, but I really wanted to concentrate my thoughts uh, in verses 1 through 6 tonight. Uh, particularly verse 6 is the kind of the conclusion of that particular discourse. As I said, uh, he initially starts off here addressing the hearts, the the. the the language here suggests that he's speaking to an issue that has already happened. In other words, he's not saying your hearts are steady and calm right now. Uh, I'm going to give you some information for the future. Uh, I think Jesus is speaking to an ongoing condition that's become evident in his disciples. 
In other words, their, their hearts are troubled, and he's saying, as it were to them, put a halt to that. Stop that progression. Don't follow that track. You need not be of troubled heart here. And that's really important. And I thought about, as I mentioned already, there were uh, three, three things that we know of building up to this, at least, that might have served to undermine uh, their, their sense of peace or their sense of calm in the presence of Christ. Number one was the potential or the, uh, the prospect of being without the presence of Christ. Uh, I mean, we, we think in terms of, well, Christ takes up residence in us in the Holy Spirit, and so we have the abiding presence of Christ. But at this point, uh, they're not aware of that. And he's going to teach them later on that the Spirit will come to them. But at this point, to remove Christ is to remove his presence from them. And they've been with him three years. And Christ has ministered to them and taught them and, and demonstrated his glory many times. So you can imagine that the heart is now shaken, as it were, at the prospect of the absence of Christ's manifest presence here. So that's troubling enough. The second one, I think, involved in here is the idea that there's a betrayer among us. And that's interesting because whenever Jesus says in chapter 13, verse 21... Uh, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another out of loss of which one he was speaking. And of course, we read on that John was leaning against Christ and Peter motions to him and say, who is it? But they were all at a loss wondering who of us it is. And to me, that would be somewhat troubling as well, because there's a there's a betrayal in our company. Uh, there is what that demonstrates, at least for the moment, is that our, our companions, our company is unreliable at the very bottom of things. Somebody's betrayed us. I think one of the Gospels even indicates that one of, uh, and one, one recording of it says that they were saying, it is, I, is it I? And so there's almost this, this uneasiness now that you mean one of us who have been with him three years now and have seen his glory and has seen his ministry and have come to believe him could actually betray him. And so there's this uneasiness. Am I the one? I think I preached a message years ago, the Judas in me uh, and the betrayal there. So, so that would be troubling of heart. In other words, my con this close fellowship and this companion at the very bottom is can be unreliable. It's, it's not fully trustworthy. One of us is a betrayer. And even though Peter and John at least knew who that betrayer was, I don't think it would have ridded them of the idea that is, is the same potential in me. So you have two things now, the prospect of Christ's absence, uh, his manifest presence in their lives, the, pro the, the realization that the company and at, uh, at the end of the day can't be wholly and completely reliable. And then the final one with Peter, where he says so boldly and with such great resolve as we were speaking Sunday night, I'll follow you anywhere. I'll follow you unto death. And Jesus rebukes him and says, oh, would you follow me? I'm telling you that before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Not only will you not follow me, Peter, you will deny that you even know me before the rooster crows. So now there's a third element because if, if Peter, so bold and so confident and so, so resting in his devotion and consecration to Jesus Christ gets rebuked, then which of the other disciples would not wonder, is that potential in me? 
I mean, we heard earlier that Thomas says, let's go to Jerusalem. We'll die with him. I mean, there's a similar resolve, I think, in all the disciples' hearts that we'll follow Christ unto death. We have believed that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah. We're prepared to lay our lives down. And Peter states it boldly, and Jesus undermines that in a sense uh, in his own uh, estimation of his own devotion and consecration by saying, no, Peter, you won't follow me. In fact, you will deny me before the cock crows three, uh, three times before the cock crows. So there's three things there I think that by, by application would be causing our hearts to be troubled as well. Number one is what about the, the, the absence of the presence of Christ? Or I might say in the life of the Christian, the sense, the sense of his near presence. What about those times when tragedy and things like that strike and we don't have the manifest sense of Christ's presence? Then our hearts can become troubled. In fact, I've talked to many people whose hearts are very much troubled in those crises because they don't sense the near presence of Christ. If you say to them, well, he says he'll never leave us nor forsake us. And they say, yeah, I know that. And I, and I believe that to be true, but I'm, I, I want to feel the presence of Christ. I want to feel the embrace. I, it would be so encouraging to me. So their hearts are troubled because they don't sense the manifest presence of Christ in their lives. I think sometimes we can be unnerved and our hearts made unsettled in the fact that we realize that our brothers and sisters and even our own dearest loved ones at the bottom are unreliable in their own strength. How many of us have felt experienced betrayal, whether it's by a family member or a friend or, or someone who loved greatly? How many, how many church splits and conflicts have there been because someone who was trusted, a companion of the brethren, betrayed the cause at the very end or betrayed someone within the fellowship? And so that causes an uneasiness in us as well. I think it's a real uneasiness, not so much for me, I think, because I grew up in an environment where I just learned you couldn't trust anybody. But what about if you've been in an environment where you learn to trust people and so you begin to build and trust people very freely and then someone really betrayed you and hurt you very deeply? That's troubling of heart. And most troubling of all for me, and I think probably for you as well, is when you come to the realization that in your strength, you are not nearly as devoted as you think you are. You may say, just like Peter, I'll follow Jesus all the way to the end. But then something terrible, frightening, heightening something, something that threatens our very lives or those we love. And, and you find out that I'm not quite as consecrated in my own strength as I thought I would. Yes, I have the will and yes, I have the resolve. But as Jesus says, the, the flesh is willing but the, or the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And when you come to the realization of that, that's troubling of heart. Uh, it is for me. In fact, it's humbling, and I think it can have a positive effect in my sanctification because it leads me more to dependence upon Christ. But, but the first experience of that, that, I, that my heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, who can know it? When I first come to the realization of that, that's troubling to me. Uh, it's a troubling heart. And I, so, so in point of application, I think that's, the, that's some of the feelings that the disciples were going through, and Jesus understands this. So he speaks directly to that issue. First of all, by saying, stop it. Do not let your heart be troubled. Like I said, it's, it appears to me that the process was already in motion. They were of troubled heart already. These three things perhaps were weighing on them and Jesus is going away and naturally their hearts are disturbed here or agitated in some way. They've been moved from their confidence and their peace and their, and their just their relationship with Christ. And Jesus seems to be saying, 
dam that up. Put a stop to that now. You need not follow that course. Let not. Do not allow your heart to become troubled. And to me, the implication is when I sense it is troubled, remember those words. I don't have to allow that. I don't have to let that progression keep happening. I think sometimes that's where we get off base is because when we feel that first moment of anxiety, it just runs away with us. And, and there's no faithful checking of that saying, wait a minute, Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. And then we go to the text and say, well, why did he say not to be troubled? And that's exactly what he's going to do to them. But the first, first order of business is when your heart is troubled that way, just stop. Just stop it. Do not let it. When it happens that way, understand that that is not the intentions of Christ, that his followers and believers would be agitated of heart. Not to say that we won't experience, but we can check it there because he is purchasing something here that he's going to tell the disciples about that should prevent that. So that's the first exhortation here. He mentions uh, several things here. First of all, and I just called these realities or you might be imperatives. By the way, uh, these are both imperatives when he says believe in God. Uh, believe also in me. Sometimes you hear that as an indicative and an imperative. You believe in God, that's indicative. Believe in me, that's imperative. Uh, but in the, in the Greek, they're both of these verbs are imperative. So you really should read it this way. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And so there's a, there's a parallel going on there that I think is really critical. In other words, he's not saying you believe in God indicative. You can believe in me also or believe in me also a command based on an indicative. He's, he's really given an imperative in both cases. Yes, believe in God by all means, believe in God. And then on an equal plane, believe also in me. So there's a, you see what I'm saying? There's a, there's a, there's a continuity or a, uh, uh, a consistency in the two. He's not saying believe in God and believe in me. It's like he's laying those out side by side as though to do one is to do the other. And I think the rest of the text supports that when he says, Peter, Philip, do you not know that if you've seen me, you've seen the father? So, so that's the exhortation. First and foremost, believe in God. You believe in God. Imperative. I wrote this when I was thinking about that. It's as if he's saying, first of all, in the indicative, maybe more so, that's how you would and should steady your hearts. You think about that. You believe in God. Well, my heart's agitated. I, I have the prospect of, of not having the presence of Christ, the manifest presence of Christ. I, I've been betrayed by friends, and I'm now I'm, I'm worried about the stability of the companionships I have. I'm not even trusting in my own heart. What did you do in the past when you had that experience? You believe in God. That's how, that's how you always overcome troubled hearts. Read through the Psalms. How does the psalmist uh, give a balm to his troubled soul? He begins to reflect upon the truths of God and the glory of God, and that brings a sort of a peace to his soul. So, so belief in God, that, that's imperative because that's how you've always addressed troubled hearts. But then he lays down beside that, believe in me also. And so this may be somewhat new to them, but I think he's bringing the same parallel there. How did you always deal with a troubled heart? You, you believed in God. That is imperative that you do so. And I'm not saying to you, stop believing in God and believing me. I'm saying it's imperative that you continue to believe in God, but also understand that that's, that is equated to believing in me. And he's going to go on to make that case. So that's the first remedy for troubled hearts. If you're here tonight. And you have a troubled heart. That's the first remedy. It's an imperative. Believe in God. First of all, acknowledge that your heart is troubled. 
Understand that that is not the, the condition of the heart of those who belong to Christ. So believe in God. Believe God and believe also in Jesus Christ. Don't, don't abandon the one, but understand them as a belief in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that's the first remedy that he gives. But notice also that he says in regards to what he says now, because this is the foundation. Believe in God, believe, in also, believe also in me. And now he's going to go on to say some things, some of these realities that I think he's pointing towards. In other words, you, you believe God, believe me also. And that involves believe what I'm about to tell you because it is necessary for, for a remedy for troubled hearts. Don't let your heart be troubled, but don't just do that in your own strength. I'm going to demonstrate to you why your heart should not be troubled and why you should check your heart when you find that it is troubled. Number one, you believe in God. It's indicative, but it's also an imperative here. Believe in God. Yes, believe in God, but also believe in me. And now he's going to give us what he has to say. Number uh, Verse 2, in my father's house are many dwelling places. So the first one I'm getting here is that here's something that you can believe in Jesus and believe in God, who is saying here, Jesus is saying, essentially, there is room for you in the Father's house. I thought about how that would be comforting, especially when we're troubled hard and when we don't have the manifest presence of Christ and when we understand that we don't have completely, totally faithful companions and when we realize we can't even trust our own hearts. Uh, we didn't lose our place with the Father. Is a reassurance here. Believe in God. Believe also in me. There is, in my Father's house, are many rooms, or there is much space. There is a place for you. You don't lose your space when you have these difficulties to endure. You don't lose that space whenever you have a troubled heart. In my Father's house are many rooms. So you don't lose your place. Secondly here, if suddenly there were, this were no longer true, Jesus says, I would have told you. So there's the assurance that this is the case. In my Father's house are many places. If it were not so, if, or you might say, if that suddenly became untrue or for some reason was not a trustworthy statement, you can believe me that I would have told you. In other words, I haven't told you that, therefore that hasn't changed. Whatever the crisis is that you're experiencing that's agitating your heart and moving you away from faith, it is not rooted in reality because I have not informed you that there is not a place for you. I've not informed you that there is no room for you there. Let me just insert here, but the context of this, I know the King James uses the word mansions, and I remember when I was a kid, they'd sing gospel songs, and um, there was one talking about a mansion over in glory, and, and I grew up thinking of, thinking of that place as all gold, and I understand there's some revelation passages that might indicate that, but the emphasis here is a place in the presence of God. In fact, I believe the analogy Jesus is drawing from is the marriage analogy or the betrothal. My understanding from reading those historical records is that the son uh, would, the father would actually select the bride for the son, and then there would be this courtship and betrothal, and the father and the son would add on to his father's house. He would essentially add a room to the father's house. 
And each day as it come to its conclusion, he would have to get the father's approval in regards to the preparation of the house. And, and he would go, come, Father, come see the house. And the father would come out and view that and say, no, son, you need to work on this and this. Everything's not just right. Keep working on it. And he'd work on it some more. And he'd prepare and prepare. And one day, finally, the father would come out, view the addition to the house and say, the room is set. The room is made perfect. Go retrieve your bride. And then he would go get his bride, bring her back, and they would find room in the father's house. I believe that's the analogy Jesus is drawing from here. In fact, you think about the church as the bride of Christ and, and Christ as the groom. I'm going to my father's house. My father has selected my bride. I'm going to my father's house now to prepare a place for my bride. And when the preparation is done, my father will one day say, son, go get your bride and I will come and get my bride and bring her back and she will be with me always. Uh, to me, that's much more powerful than the, than the idea that I've got a mansion with a pool and a, and a swimming pool in the backyard and a nice golf green. That is not appealing at all to me as, as the analogy that he actually uses. And so he's saying to them, in my father's house, many rooms. It's not just a room for you and you and you, but all the chosen of God, all those whom God has chosen to be the bride of Christ. There are many rooms in my house. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe God, believe also in me and believe that there is a room there for you. That ought to, that ought to have an immediate effect on a troubled heart. Don't you think? Sure does me. Sure does me. Because if this trouble, this trouble that's causing my troubled heart even eventually produces my death, my room's already prepared in the New Testament context. I'm just going home. I'm just, I'm just one of the church, uh, one of the, one of those in the church and the bride of Christ he's going to bring home until he brings all the bride in at the end of the age. And so that is greatly comforting. So he says two things. There is room in my father's house. Number two. If that wasn't true, I would have already told you. Number three, I'm going to prepare that place. In other words, you're, you're considered, you're troubled by the prospect of my absence, but in my absence, I am going to prepare that very place for you. All those rooms in my father's house, I am going there to make preparation so that you might come and occupy one of those rooms someday. So yes, I am going away from you. Yes, you won't have my manifest presence in, in far as our fellowship and breaking bread together in the sense of the flesh, but I'm going away to prepare something far greater than that. So don't let your heart be troubled. Stay calm. Stay at peace and be at rest knowing that I am preparing the place to which I will receive you as he tells them later. So that's another reality that should bring calmness to a troubled heart. He's gone. He went away to prepare a place for us. I personally believe that preparation is already made. We're awaiting now the call of the, the call of the bridegroom to come get his church or the call of the bridegroom to his church to come home. We do that individually one at a time before the Lord returns, but someday the bride's going home. The bride's going to find her room already prepared in Christ in his going, I think, was doing the preparatory work. I don't, I don't think he's in, the, in glory right now still preparing the house. I think all that preparation happened upon the cross and in the resurrection. Uh, and to prepare, what's happening now is the preparation of the bride to be brought into the house. <laughs> That's called sanctification. So I think that was completed at that moment. So he says to them, don't have a troubled heart. My father's house are many dwelling places. I would have told you if that weren't so. I'm going to prepare that place for you. And in verse 3 he says, 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Did you notice the, the kind of the conditional nature of that, uh, the if word there? Uh, to me, that should bring some peace to the troubled heart as well because it makes my coming again to receive you dependent upon my going. And so uh, I think that's what's happening in regards to uh, Mary when she sees Jesus in the garden and she clings to him and he says, don't cling to me. I've not yet gone to my father. She wanted to keep Jesus' physical presence with her. She wanted to hold him there and, and to do so was to keep her exclusive to himself. And he's, he's really essentially saying, I must go to my father so that you can have a deeper intimacy and that all can have an intimacy with me. That is the preparation that has to be made. And if I don't go, that doesn't get made and then I can't come and receive you to myself. So there should be some peace regarding the temporary absence of Christ in their presence here, at least in the idea that in order for him to come back and receive me to himself, he must go. So I must let him go and by faith live in his absence, live in his absence of his immediate presence, having by faith believing that he is going to the Father's house to make preparation. And if he makes that preparation, he will come again and receive you to himself. Uh, you ever think about the stability and the joy in that statement? Uh, if he goes away <clears throat> and prepares the place, which he did, and, that, and, and it's his father's house. He says later on here that you must come through him to come to the father. So if we come through him and we belong to the father, when he went away, he prepared our place. Think about this. There's a place for you who believe right now in the, in the father's house. There is, a, there is a, a, a place where you will be received. And someday, whether it's our going to him or his return, he's saying, because I went and prepared the place, that, that makes it possible that I'm coming back again to receive you to myself, to take you and be where I am as my bride. Uh, that's just an extraordinary comfort to me because I know he went away. And I know he did the work of preparation upon the cross. He paid for sin. He became the propitiation of our sins. We are redeemed in Jesus Christ. And so the work to bring me home to the Father's house has already been accomplished. The preparation has happened. I'm just awaiting him to come and receive me to himself. But if he doesn't go, he doesn't come. He did go. It means he is coming. And to me, that ought to be a great comfort. I was telling someone uh, earlier this week, one of the beauties about getting older uh, is that you, you take more seriously the day of your departure from this world and you start asking more serious questions about what have I got beyond that. Uh, I made the point, I can talk to the deacons may, maybe more personally, but I want to move the memorial boards out in a more prominent place in the church for two reasons. When these little kids walk by and they look up there and they see all those names going back to 1929 and they say, Mom or Dad, what's all those? I hope moms and dad will say, those are the believers upon whom shoulders you're standing. They were here. They were faithful. They served the Lord here. They died here. They were buried here. We sent them home with glory with the same promise that we're holding to today. That's the, that's the foundation that you are standing upon uh, in regards to the church uh, life itself. And for another reason is that I want those kids as early as possible when they walk by there and see those empty spaces yet to be filled to realize that one day your name will be there. Uh, I don't mean that in a morbid way. I don't mean that in a frightening way, but I mean that in a sober reflection that all of us have that day coming to us. And it's these promises that will carry us through that day. 
Because there's trouble of heart when we think about those things and contemplate those things. But with these promises, that trouble of heart gets, to me, gets soothed away quite quickly. Because he's gone away to prepare a place and is coming again to receive us to himself. What's the goal of that? Verse 3, that where I am there you may be also. Union, ultimately union with Christ. Companionship, fellowship with Christ. Eternally unbroken. That's why I'm going to prepare the place. I'm going to do this preparatory work so that I can come back and receive you to myself and take you and be where I am in the Father's house. And there, that's where we'll be eternally. And there'll be no lacking or need of anything in that moment. That's a great comfort. That's a great comfort. Life, as hard as it can be and troubling as it can be, is fleeting in comparison to the joy and the comfort we'll know eternally. Verse 4 Jesus says, uh, the wording here was always kind of difficult for me in, uh, really early in my Christian life and to some degree now, but he says, and you know the way where I'm going. Because uh, the natural reading of that to me would have been, you know the way, uh, you know the way that I'm going. But he seems to say, you know the way to the place that I'm going. And, and Thomas seems to say, I don't even know the where. What are you talking about? You gave us an analogy from a marriage, and I'm not sure how that translates over. We don't even know where you're going, much less the way there. I mean, if I tell you, I want you to go this way, but I don't tell you that it's uh, Nags Head, North Carolina, is where you're going, how are you going to know the way? That's essentially what Thomas is saying. I don't know. We don't know where it is you're going. How in the world are we going to know the name? Just tell us where you're going, and then we'll understand when you tell us the way. We'll know that this is the way where you're going. And so I think Thomas asked an honest question because that's the way that passage strikes me. It just seems odd to me. You know the way where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And then these words uh, are some of those echoing words from Scripture that stick with you down through the years. But Jesus said to him, I am. I am the way. We don't know the way. Jesus said, I am the way. We don't, we don't know the way to the Father. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And then he adds this, which is so, so decisive in my own understanding of soteriology Altogether is no man comes to the Father but through me. I am the way. I've used this analogy before. If Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and we can't come to, any, come to the Father except through him, then there must be some problem with us in regards to the way, the truth, and the life. And I've always made the analogy. He's the way for lost men, the truth for deceived men, and the life for dead men. And so Jesus is everything that we are not here. And Jesus is saying, Thomas says, I don't know where you're going. How in the world can I know the way? And, the, and the, really the answer is, Thomas, me. I am where you're going. I am the destination. Union with me is, is being in the Father's house. It's being one with the Father. That is, that is the destination. I am the way. I am the way to that place. But I am the truth as well. 
And to me, that's what's really so needed in this world. It's, we go, as Christians, we say all the time, there are not many roads to heaven. I even hear some professing Christians uh, waffling in regards to other avenues to, to, to heaven or to, to God. And they're minimizing what Jesus is saying here because Jesus is saying, I am the way. There's nobody coming to the Father except through me. And for, for a generation to be wavering on that is to diminish the very glory of Christ here. I am the way. I am the only way. And here's the thing that strikes me. He's the way to the Father, but he, he's the way in regards to the entrance and the means, but also he's the way all the way through sanctification to the Father. He is, he is our life, literally, at the end of this passage. He's not just our entrance into the Father's presence. He is the means by which we come into the Father's presence altogether. He is both justification, sanctification, and glorification. He's more than the world would believe that he is. And he's certainly much more than many in our day today would say he is by saying there are other ways. Uh, by the way, to me, the, the blasphemy of that saying that is that you minimize the glory of Christ. You, you say that, yes, he paid a high price and there will be many who can come to the Father through believing in Jesus. But there's some other ways to get to him as well. And when those arrive in the presence of the Father and everybody's glorifying Jesus, they're going to look at Jesus and say, well, I didn't get here by him. I, I came this other way. Do you think that's going to happen in the presence of the Father? No. Everyone in the presence of the Father will have come through Jesus Christ. He is the way. But he is the truth as well. He will not come uh, through intellect. It will not come through uh, the rationality of men or the wisdom of men. He is the truth. He does not only speaks the truth, but he is the destination of the truth spoken. He is the arrival place where all truth will lead. All truth that is truth will ultimately lead to him. Jesus is that singular, and he certainly is the life. There will be no life apart from Christ. That was one of the, the remarkable things about my conversion experience is how, how alive I felt in that moment and how weighty the realization of how dead I was prior to that came to me. I mean, I'd heard people say, well, you're dead in your sins. And I always thought to myself, well, I may be a sinner, but I don't feel dead. In fact, I'm getting in a whole lot of trouble to be a dead man. And that's kind of the way I looked at it. But when you're born again and you know life, then you look back on that and you understand that's about as dead as I could be. The only, the only thing that wasn't completely dead in me was this fleshly body and it still had a heartbeat by God's grace, but I was as dead as I could be in that moment. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Let me just say this evangelistically. If you go to lost men and you tell them some other way other than Christ, you're in direct violation of this text of Scripture. If you go to deceive men and proclaim to them anything other than the truth of this Word of God, you are, you are deceiving even further men already deceived, and you are going against this text. If you go to someone and say there can be life in its fullness apart from Jesus Christ, you are deceiving men again, and you are going in direct violation to this text. It ought to be a guide for all evangelism. Proclaim Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. And the reason for that is he says it very plainly here. They're not coming to the Father except that way. They're not coming. And Jesus says in another place, no man can come to me unless the Father draws him. And so you got the Father drawing on one hand to the Son, and the Son saying, you can't get to him unless I, you come through me. 
So God in back of this is drawing out the members of his bride, the members of his church. He's drawing them out, bringing them to Christ, and they receive Christ by faith through grace, and they through Christ come into the Father's presence. These are mine, son. This is the bride. You prepare the place. You go get the bride, and they'll come back to the Father through the bridegroom. It's essentially what he's just analogized here. There is no other way to, to the Father except by Christ. Here's what bothers me about that sometimes. As Christians, we would wholeheartedly embrace that. But how quickly, once you became a Christian, did you, did you move away from that and go into some other means by which you thought you were, you were being made acceptable to God? That's exactly what Galatians is talking about. In fact, how often does Paul rebuke them and say, how, how is it that you've been removed from the grace by which you're calling and now somehow being justified by your works? And that's a real temptation for Christians. And I think it's out of a good, a good intention. We just want to serve God and, and serve him and glorify him in those ways. But you can slip off in the midst of that to thinking that now your acceptance is based on the, your works and all the good things you're doing for the glory of God. I've told the story about a lady I knew that was a, she was a real dynamo for evangelism. She shared the gospel with everybody she met and everybody that said the prayer. She literally had a stick of wood that she would cut a notch in. And she told one time how many notches she had in her stick. And I, I didn't say it to her at the moment, but I thought to myself, you're going to be really surprised when you get to heaven and find out there ain't nobody on your stick in glory. God calls, God draws, and through Christ they come. Not through your works, and you are made no more acceptable by, to God by the notches that you were putting in your little stick. Yes, be faithful to proclaim the gospel. You ought to do that, but always as an instrument for God to use to call and to draw and to call through Jesus Christ. Because they're only coming through Jesus. They're only coming through Jesus. Remember what Paul said when he came to the Corinthians? Was it the Corinthians, I think? He says, I came determined to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. Why does Paul say that? There's a lot that Paul taught them. Paul had a whole lot more to speak to them other than that. But that was the foundation of it because nobody's coming to Christ, through, uh, coming to the Father except through Christ. So I'm preaching Christ. We'll talk, we'll talk the details of the doctrine later. But if you miss that, all the doctrine in the world won't get you there. All people come through Christ. That's a good reminder for us tonight, I think, and a good reminder for us as we evangelize or as we speak to others uh, about the gospel. Uh, Paul also said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's the heart of the gospel. Uh, we should never be ashamed of that reality. And I'm certainly not, and I don't think you are. So thank you for being here tonight. Let's stand with me and let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you have drawn us to Christ as believers and that we have come into your presence through Christ. Lord, those are spiritual realities. We still live in this world, and there's still the flesh to battle, and there's still sanctification to be accomplished in our lives. But, Lord, I thank you for the certainty that brings calm to the troubled heart when we realize that this life is short, and the troubles and trials of these days will fade away someday and almost be unrecognizable or as if they never even happened in comparison to the glory that shall be revealed to us. Lord, I thank you that you have called us to Christ and that through Christ we have come to your presence. I pray that as we go into our world, Lord, as we interact with those in the world, whether brothers and sisters or those who are apart from Christ, that we would keep these great truths in mind. And Lord, I do know in our church family there are hearts, even at this moment, who are troubled. Lord, they're caught up in the 
in their prospects of what might be ahead for them. Their hearts are broken. They're, they see distresses ahead, and truly there are sad times and difficult days for them, but I pray that these truths as well would minister to them by your Spirit. Lord, whatever happens in this life, whatever's troubling the heart now, uh, is nothing to be compared to the truth and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you for that great mercy. Lord, again, thank you for those who've come tonight. I pray that you, by your Spirit, have provoked uh, thoughts in them, uh, desires in them to study your word, to look, to look closer for you. And I pray that it's provoked in us a greater view and a higher view of Christ our Lord and Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.